Good morning, church. So yeah, today's Bible reading is Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and it can be found on the screen behind us. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are drawn under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learnt that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Excuse me. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. 
I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and every and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successors do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also, What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get from all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you all this morning. It's great to be looking at a a very intriguing book of the Bible. Um, You might be familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, or or perhaps that reading that we had before was the the first time that you've ever read the book. Um, I think the idea is that I'm I'm doing a five-week series on Ecclesiastes at Modbury, and I think the idea is that when there are gaps in... The, the preaching program here, or if Luke gets sick or, or takes takes holidays or something, then I might come back and sort of gradually go at it. So you'll probably have me here in six months' time looking at the next chapter and another six months' time looking at the next one. So each week I'll come, I'll, I'll remind you of what we looked at last time so you don't have to remember things for, for that long. Um, but the mood comes across as quite cynical, doesn't it, when, when we read th- those first couple of chapters? Quite, quite pessimistic, meaningless, meaningless. 
everything is meaningless. You, you kind of think, do, do we need this sort of negativity? Don't we have enough negativity in the world today? Um, well, here's the thing, though. I don't think the writer of Ecclesiastes was a pessimist. I think, I think he was a man who is in tune with the, the deepest longings of his own heart. And he knows that nothing in life truly satisfies these longings. Maybe that's a feeling that you can relate to. The writer C.S. Lewis, I think, expressed it really well. This is what he said. Most people, if they had really learnt to look into their own hearts, would know that they want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. I wonder if that rings true for you, that, that, that life never quite seems to deliver on what it promises. The writer of Ecclesiastes is posing the question of whether true meaning and lasting gain can be found in life. And the answer that he gives us is no. At least, not without bringing God into the picture. Ecclesiastes shows us how the frustrations of life, which, which we're all familiar with, point us to the author of life. So whether you're someone who's been following Jesus your whole life, or this is the first time you've ever come to church, my hope and prayer is that the honest realities of Ecclesiastes would resonate with you. But more than that, I hope they stir up in you a longing for something more, something beyond what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. Uh, so getting into it, in verse 1, we meet the teacher or the, the gatherer of the assembly who writes Ecclesiastes. He's clearly a, a wise and, and well-respected public speaker. Now, it's commonly thought that the teacher is none other than the great King Solomon. Uh, it would explain why he identifies in verse 1 as the son of David and the, the king of Jerusalem. That's, that's who Solomon was. It would also explain the teacher's lavish lifestyle that we, that we see there in chapter 2, which lines up pretty well with what we read about Solomon in the book of 1 Kings. And it gives a bit of authenticity to the teacher's quest as well, doesn't it? You know, if anyone could find meaning in life, then surely it's the, the wisest, wealthiest person in the world at that time. The other possibility is that the teacher is actually someone who lived after Solomon, but he's using Solomon's famous life to illustrate the point that he's making. He never actually identifies as Solomon, and there's not a lot after chapter 2 that really points the teacher to being Solomon. Um, at the end of the day, we don't know for sure, but whoever this teacher is, his assessment of life that we read there in verse 2 is pretty blunt, isn't it? Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless is kind of like the theme that runs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And the word that's translated here as meaningless has a range of different meanings. It can mean futile, mist, vanity, fleeting, absurd. It's got, got all this, this range of, of meaning. Basically, what, what the teacher is saying is that life can't be grasped or pinned down, a bit like what Luke was saying before about, about chasing the wind. Uh, so I've got a, got a little one-year-old called Rory, and um, when, when he was about six months old, I had him in the bathroom with me while the shower was running, and, and you know what happens when the shower's running in the bathroom, that the steam kind of fills up the bathroom. So I'm, I'm holding Rory and there's this kind of wave of, of steam coming towards him. And, and he's at that age where he's just starting to, to grab, grab things. So the, the steam's kind of coming to him and, and Rory's trying to 
grabbed the steam and he's wondering why he, why he can't seem to, to grab hold of it. If you, if you want a mental picture of what the teacher is saying about the nature of life, then picture a six-month-old baby trying to grab hold of steam coming out of a hot shower. He's saying that, that we can never pin life down. We can never get it quite the way we want it. And as much as we'd love to, we, we can't hit the pause button and make the good moments last forever. And so the teacher asks in verse 3, what can be gained? What do people gain from their labours under the sun? See, like any shrewd investor, he's got the bottom line in mind here, the teacher. None of us would make investments that we didn't think would make a gain or make a profit. And likewise, the teacher wants to get a good return on his investment in life. Uh, This phrase, under the sun, is one that the teacher uses quite a bit in Ecclesiastes, and, and basically what he's doing is he's talking about a purely human view of the world, bounded by the world's horizons. So what we can see, hear, feel, touch, and experience, with basically with God left out of the equation. So he's critiquing a secular worldview here. And what does the teacher observe under the sun? Well, he observes the, the fleeting futile and frustrating nature of life. Generations come and go, each one forgotten by the next. The sun, the wind and the streams never arrive where they're going. The sea is never full. The water cycle never reaches its end goal. Eyes and ears are never satisfied. There's always more things to see and to hear. In the famous words of verse 9, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been before will happen again. History repeats itself again and again and again. This is observable for us in lots of different ways, like with um, Luke's Tim Tam packet and his, his coffee cup, um, but from the mundane to the extreme. So I, I changed Rory's nappy this morning before I came here. I'm going to have to do it again at some point today. I, ha- I haven't just ticked off that job, unfortunately. Um, I'll wash my car or mow my lawn this weekend, but I'll have to do it again in a couple of weeks' time. Um, We care for difficult and destructive people in our lives, just knowing that that we're going to have to care for them again. We never quite feel like we've arrived, do we? Life is just full of loose ends that we'd we'd love to be able to tie up and and move on, but, but we just can't. Now, you might be thinking, what, nothing new under the sun? What about all the technological advances that we're making as a society? Well, I've got an iPhone 11, which, you know, it's not the newest iPhone going around, but it's a pretty nice phone. I quite like it. But when I got it, I was no more happy and excited than I was when I got my first Nokia 3210 almost 20 years ago. And, And more to the point, human nature doesn't change, does it? The 20th century was meant to be the era where, when science and technology left religion for dead and took humanity to the next level. But it just helps us to fight bigger wars, doesn't it? We're seeing that right now. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to who we are. And this all leaves the teacher concluding that the world is a broken place and we can't fix it. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And therefore, verse 14, all things done under the sun 
are meaningless, the teacher says. Humanity hasn't arrived and we never will. We're more likely to literally catch the wind than to achieve gain under the sun. And so in verse 16, the teacher moves from general observations of the world to his own personal experience. He tells us of his quest to find meaning and substance in life. And he's asking the question here, where can we find meaning? Now, if King Solomon wasn't the writer of Ecclesiastes, then the teacher must surely here be using the events of Solomon's life to to communicate his point here which is that not even the wealthiest, wisest person in the world can find satisfaction and meaning in the things of this world. Uh, The teacher begins by looking for meaning in wisdom. Now, Solomon, if if you've read the book of 1 Kings, you'll, you'll read that Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. God gave him incredible wisdom. But it doesn't satisfy him. Wisdom just brings him more sorrow. It doesn't solve the frustrations of life, it just teaches him more about them. So instead, he he takes his attention away from wisdom and and turns his attention to to laughter, folly, entertainment. But even the the best wine and the funniest stand-up comedians at the king's disposal just don't scratch that itch. They, They can't fill the emptiness that he feels. So he turns to work. He he undertakes great projects, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, possessions beyond measure. Solomon's wealth and building projects were extraordinary. He takes delight in his work, but that's his only reward. Verse 11, when he surveys what he's achieved, he sees that it's still meaningless. No gain has been made. What about pleasure? The teacher says he denies himself nothing, investing in every pleasure. Now, Solomon, you might be aware, had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so he's not kidding when he says this. Um, But even for the man who has it all, everything comes up short. He examines his life and he sees no meaning, no gain. And that's because he comes to a realisation that he's going to keep coming back to throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is the unescapable reality of death. Verse 14, the same fate overtakes both the wise and the foolish person. The wise teacher knows that he's going to come to the same end as the most foolish person who ever lived. And this is why there was no gain in all of the teacher's work. Because from a human perspective, under the sun... Death is the end. It's the great enemy. It's always going to get the last laugh. And so for someone with the teacher's desire for gain and fulfillment in life, death is a crushing blow. And so the teacher despairs. He hates life, he says, because one day he knows that he's going to have to leave behind everything that he's worked hard for to someone who hasn't earned it. Now, in Solomon's case, that would be quite a a well-founded fear because after he died, the poor leadership of his son basically destroyed the kingdom that he'd worked hard to build. The world is a frustrating place, the teacher concludes. 
And even the man best placed to, to find meaning and gain in the world comes up short. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. So where does that leave us, we might wonder? Well, it requires us to, to broaden our horizons beyond the sun. And in the final couple of chapters, uh, sorry, the final couple of verses of chapter 2, the teacher finally, finally reaches a positive note when he brings God into the picture. He sees that food, drink, and work, these are gifts from God for our enjoyment. And verse 26, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness while the sinner, that is the person who doesn't care about pleasing God, all they can do is just gather up wealth that someone else will one day own. Can you see that the key here, the key here is seeking to please God. The teacher's quest that he he told us about at the start of chapter 2, it was a very self-centered quest, wasn't it? If, If you read through it, it's all I, 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 me, me, me. It's all about him. And it leaves him seeking meaning and fulfillment in things that were never meant to provide meaning and fulfillment. God gives us good things. He gives us wisdom, wine, food, laughter, pleasure, home building projects, and and so much more. But good things get spoiled when when we try to extract more out of them than they were meant to offer us. The key to enjoying these gifts is recognizing them to be exactly that, gifts. And if the gifts are this good, then how good must the giver be? Alicia, my wife, bought me a gift a little while ago. I've actually got it here. It's a, it's a face mask that's got seals on it. I get, get quite a, little, a lot of compliments because the seals are, are quite cute. Um, it's, it's a nice gift. I really, I really like it. Um, but how sad would it be for me to obsess over what a, what a great gift this is and, and draw attention to the mask and, and tell everyone how great my mask is and ignore the person who gave it to me? See, this gift, it, it represents a, a tiny, tiny fraction of, of how special Alicia is to me and, and how much I love her and the joy I have of knowing her. If the gift is good, then the giver must be much, much better. And it's the same for our relationship with God, isn't it? Seeking meaning and gain in anything but God is going to sell us short. True satisfaction can only be found in God himself. So what is it you think that you need to be happy? Do do you ever think to yourself, "I I just need something and then everything will be good? The teacher is telling us, whatever that is, it's a dead end. There'll be something else that you want. There's going to be another barrier to your happiness that will pop up as soon as you you get that thing. When I was in high school, I I thought deep down that all I wanted to be happy was just to get the grades that I wanted to get into uni. That's that's all I want. I don't want anything else in life. And then I got to uni and I thought, I I just want a job coming out of uni. I just want to get that job coming out of uni, and then that's, that's all I want. I'll be happy. I'll, I'll be set. And then I thought, oh, it'd be nice to get married, wouldn't it? I, I just want to get married, and then, then I'll be happy in life. I'll, I'll, I'll have reached the point that I want to reach in life. 
And then you get married and think, oh, it'd be great to have kids, wouldn't it? It'd be great to own a house as well. And we, you get the point I'm making, that it just keeps on, keeps on happening. We, we never arrive in life. There's always another loose end that we want to tie up. There's always one more thing that we want to have. It's tempting, isn't it, to, to seek our satisfaction and our meaning in the same sorts of places that the teacher looked. I mean, how good is it living in Adelaide in the 21st century? Even King Solomon didn't have cars, Wi-Fi, modern medicine, and, and so many of the things that we take for granted today. But the world is broken, even here and now. Under the sun, from a, from a human vantage point, in a broken world, true meaning and lasting gain can never be found. But God wants us to find it in Him. He created humans to enjoy a perfect and never-ending relationship with Him. One of infinite gain. But we rejected Him. We chose to seek our meaning and our happiness in created things rather than the Creator Himself. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And by doing that, we corrupted our relationship, not only with God, but our, our relationships with each other and our relationship with the world around us as well. The brokenness and the futility that the, that the teacher sees in the world all around him, it shouldn't surprise us because it's a consequence of sin. Uh, we read about it in Romans chapter 8. If you're looking on the outline on the, the hub page, I've got a, a couple of verses up there. Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. But there's good news as well. Frustration and death aren't the end of the story. Our sin and our broken relationship with God aren't the end of the story because something happened after the teacher's lifetime. Something that he didn't know about. He didn't know it was going to happen. Something that helps us to understand his words in a way that not even he did. Jesus, God's own son, died to deal with our sins once for all. My sin, your sin, all, all of our sin. To bear it himself so that we don't have to. And not only that, but he was raised back to life as well to prove that there's something on the other side of death. He's dealt not only with our guilt before God, but he's dealt with the harsh reality of death as well. Um, so if you're here this morning, just checking church out, not, not quite sure of what it's all about, working out if it's for you, uh, this is what is at the heart of Christianity. Believing that Jesus died and he was raised back to life as well so that we can be right with God. So we live now with the reality of sin and, and brokenness in the world. But we await what's to come. When, in the, in the words of Romans chapter 8, creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Our adoption as God's children will be fully realized. Our faulty bodies will be fully redeemed. And, and these words of Romans chapter 8 verse 18, 
uh, will not just be a longing hope, but a present reality. When Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What a wonderful hope to have. The gospel message not only gives us this hope, but it, but it shows us how amazing God is, how satisfied we can be in him, what meaning and gain we can find in him. A God who loved us enough, even when we rejected him, even when we pushed him away, to send his own son to die in our place so that we could be brought back into a relationship with him. Now, you might be thinking now, if everything under the sun is meaningless, then what about my work? Am I just wasting my time between nine and five each day each week? Um, what about my hobbies? What, what about life itself? Surely, surely there's got to be some meaning to it all. And the answer is that if we're placing our significance in these things, if we're, if we're seeking our identity in them, then in a sense, they are meaningless in, in a sense that they won't last. But if we're doing these things, if we're going to work, if we're going about our hobbies, wanting to please God and wanting to enjoy what he's given us, then there's much meaning and gain because we're, we're serving God, we're aligning ourselves with his eternal purposes. So where are you seeking meaning and satisfaction in life? In the good things that you have? In the good things that you want? Or in the God who gives us good things for our enjoyment as a tiny, tiny hint of just how awesome he is and just how much he has in store for us? If the gifts are good, then how awesome must the giver be? Are you seeking your fulfillment in something that can provide that fulfillment. Life under the sun might be meaningless, it might be frustrating, it might be full of loose ends and letdowns, but when we look beyond the sun, when we bring God into the picture, it changes everything. So I'm looking forward to coming back here one day in a, a few months or a few years' time and finishing off the book of Ecclesiastes at some point, but um, for now let me pray as we reflect on the first couple of chapters. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it answers the, the nagging questions at the back of our minds, that it, that it speaks into the, the longings and the dissatisfactions that we have in life. We pray that as we, as we look at this world and, and as we see loose ends, as we see the frustrations, as we, as we feel the pain at various times, that you would be helping us to, to look beyond the sun, to look beyond things that we see from a, from a human perspective and to see you at work and to, to remember and to know what you've done for us through Jesus and what you've promised us through Jesus. And we pray that that would give us hope and joy in a broken world as we look forward to the infinitely better life that you've promised us. In Jesus' name, amen.